Hey everybody, you're listening to Dead Ideas, the podcast of extinct thoughts and practices. Today we're continuing our witches theme with another episode of Public Domain Theater 3000, where we read public domain works because we can and no one can sue us for it. Thanks for listening. We just finished our series on anti-witches, the Benandanti, or good walkers of the Friuli region of Renaissance Italy, who used fennel stalks to fight witches armed with sorghum sticks. And as we learned in the series, the Roman Inquisition convinced the Benandanti that they were witches, even though they claimed to be fighting against witches, and the Inquisition kind of brought the hammer down on them, but did so very lightly. And by the end, we're really just kind of bored with it all, strangely. Nobody got burned at the stake, and hardly anybody was even punished. Italy just didn't have the witch-burning craze that we all think of. But some regions did, at big time, particularly Germany. So... This week, to dive deeper into this whole weirdness that was the European witch craze, let's go back to the book that started it all, or at least made it all boil over, the Malleus Maleficarum. Malleus is Latin for hammer, and Maleficarum for malefactor, so it's kind of the hammer of evildoers, usually translated as the hammer of witches. So that's what we're going to be reading today on Public Domain Theater 3000. Now, I have to do this with some apologies to the Lesser Bonapartes, who have already covered this topic and done so hilariously, I might add, in an episode called Hammer Time. We mentioned that in our series. But their approach is a little different. They give a comedic overview of the book, whereas we're going to give you the text of the book itself, or at least significant portions of it, because it would be like 10 hours long if we did the whole thing. Uh, but this way, you can hear the book's voice, its reasoning, such as it is, and, and really get a feel for the text itself. So I think that our two episodes are, can complement each other. So if you like what you hear here, definitely check out them to get a better view of the whole book. And finally, just a little word of warning, this text is notorious for being highly misogynistic, and ridiculously so, and we're going to get into some of that. It will not be pretty. It will be funny. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's going to be funny, uh, but it, it won't be pretty. So word of warning, you've been warned. All right, let's go ahead. Okay, so let's get into it. Let's start with a bit of background because we all know witches from like Halloween and stuff, but it, it's we're almost kind of hindered by that sort of stereotypical view that we have in our head. So let's kind of get into the time and place and what was how people thought about it. Okay, so... This book, the Malleus Maleficarum, comes from a time that's a bit earlier than we've been discussing in this series. It, would, it was published in 1486, so that's about a century before the Benandanti Inquisition trials. The printing press had just been invented about 40 years earlier, in the 1440s somewhere, and that no doubt played a role in it kind of rapidly becoming popular across Europe. It was published in the city of Speyer, which is in the southwest of today's Germany, near Frankfurt and Stuttgart, kind of. And the author was an, an inquisitor named Heinrich Kramer, or Henricus Institoris, in his kind of Latinized version of his name. 
but he was not a typical inquisitor at all. He was very unusual for his times. In 1486, you see, nobody was burning witches. Nobody. They burned heretics at the stake, but not witches. In fact, few in the church really cared about witches all that much. I mean, they yes, they, con they condemned folk practices that often were held over from pre-Christian times, um, and that might have included, it often included magic and whatnot. And, but as Nick told us in the series, priests saw this more as kind of ignorant country bumfolk who were, you know, more to be pitied for their mistaken beliefs and corrected than burned for heresy. It wasn't this sense of, like, impending social doom to have their presence in the village. Uh, the whole idea of the witch, with its pact with the devil and meeting in covens for a witch's Sabbath and its mortal danger to the public at large, like I was just saying, all that had to be invented. And it was invented largely in the imaginary space of scholarly books. It was a book thing. The Malleus Maleficarum was the prime example of this kind of book, and it became so popular that it actually outsold all other books except for the Bible for a space of about 200 years, believe it or not. Strangely, though, it had a tense relationship with the church. Kramer did obtain a special papal bull to prosecute witches, kind of a permission to go ahead and inquisit witches, but many in the church condemned the book and its methods, and the Inquisition didn't recognize its authority at all. And there's even some questions about this special papal bull as being somewhat wrangled to fit Kramer's view and might not have been intended quite. There's a lot of controversy around that even, too. So it has a weird relationship with the church. And Kramer himself was actually seen as an oddball, even before he wrote the book. He seemed to have a pervy obsession with a certain woman named Helena Scheuberin, who was a rather spunky and independent-minded woman of the town of Innsbruck, who had something of a reputation for promiscuity. Now, mind you, at the time, it probably didn't take much more than like a glance at a guy to get a reputation for promiscuity at the time. Uh, so maybe just the spunky independent-mindedness was all she was really guilty of. Who knows, okay? There's also some, uh, s there's some indication that she might have known some actual sort of magic or spellcraft kind of things, and there was something about uh, a knight she may have either killed by witchcraft or by poison, possibly. So there's, there's a lot of kind of questions surrounding her that maybe had some legitimacy to ask in a legal sense, but Kramer took it in a totally weird direction. So, okay, so here's a little bit of the backstory. When Kramer came to the town of Innsbruck, announcing his intentions to bring witches to justice, because he was already kind of on this crusade in his own mind, she actually publicly spoke out against him and even spat on him because, I don't know, maybe, we can only speculate, but maybe she saw right through him that he was, you know, had this kind of chip on his shoulder against women or something, and so she was like, no. So anyway, she actually had the courage to speak out against him. So of course what happens? He accuses her of being a witch and brings her to trial. But in the trial, his questioning got personal and intimate. 
going into questions of her virginity and her sexual history, and so much so that the other clergy on the commission got super uncomfortable. And they were like, whoa, 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 dude, where, what are you, they were like, not cool, dude, where are we going with this? And they, so much so that they actually called a halt to the trial. And eventually, Kramer got kicked out of Innsbruck for his obsession with witches, with the local bishop calling him senile and crazy. So that's a little bit of the backstory of this guy who wrote this book. So in some ways, the Melius feels like Kramer's own it's kind of personal manifesto written to justify himself in his views when other people are like totally not going along with him at all. Okay, and so Kramer and his ilk were kind of looked on like uh, you could compare it to the Westboro Baptists. They were the Westboro Baptists of their day. They were fanatic nut jobs that did not represent the wider church of the time. So the Church and the Inquisition really actually did not look very highly upon the Malleus Maleficarum. It was actually the secular courts that ended up using it as a handbook. Now, I tried to delve into this a little bit uh, to find out why the secular courts and couldn't really come up with very much uh, that's solid, but I imagine it has to be comparable to the McCarthy era in 1950s America, where one guy's unhealthy obsession kind of whips up a mob mentality that may have been politically convenient in certain ways for certain leaders, I'm speculating a bit there, but then it gets out of hand and suddenly you can't stop and pretty soon you are seeing communists, or in this case, witches, around every corner and pointing your finger at your neighbor. So that's a little bit of the backstory uh, behind this book. Okay, now let's get into the book itself. Now remember, in these Public Domain Theater 3000 episodes, I don't actually read these texts in any depth beforehand. I browse them to make sure that they're applicable and stuff, but I don't really know what's coming any more than you do. We are encountering this together, so let's go into it. We'll start by looking a little bit at the table of contents, because <laughs> this I did read, the chapter titles themselves are priceless. Uh, and then after that we'll pick some chapters, we'll read, and we'll skip around a little bit. We'll see how far we get, okay? Alright, so let's go to it. Um, now this is the Montague Summers translation. So it's laid out in three sections. We're going to concentrate mostly on section one, because that seems like it's got a lot of really interesting stuff in there, trust me. Section two and section three are interesting too, but you can check them out on your own later. This text, the Montague Summers translation, is available free online, so you can Google search it. Section one is about witchcraft itself, why it's bad, and what witches can do to you. It's often specifically to men's junk, but we'll get, we'll get in, we will get into that. Uh, you know, patience, patience. Trust me, there's going to be some fun stuff coming. Uh, but just so you know, section two is more kind of about um, uh, witches, how they recruit people to their things. And section three is kind of like legal proceedings, how you would prosecute a witch in the Inquisition, which the Inquisition generally did not follow, did, did not follow the advice of this, by the way. But in secular courts, as I mentioned, kind of did sometimes. But that's kind of how the book is laid out. All right, let's look now at section one, because as I said, the chapter titles of this section one are priceless. But okay, so question one, chapter is like laid out as questions. Each chapter addresses a question. So chapter one is question one. So question one, whether the belief that there are such beings as witches is so essential a part of the Catholic faith 
that obstinacy to maintain the opposite opinion manifestly savors of heresy. So in other words, that chapter is going to be about, I think, should people believe that witches are real? Because actually, the line, the party line of the church at the time was that, yes, there were people who claimed that they could do magic, but only God can really bring about miracles and things. This was, they were just being, these people were deluded by the devil and they didn't really have any actual power that was efficacious in any sense. So in other words, witches don't really exist. But here, he's arguing why we should take them seriously and then, in fact, inquisit them and burn them at the stake. Uh, so that one's not so much funny, but I think that one's going to be a really interesting one. So I think we'll check out that. Question two, if it be in accordance with the Catholic faith to maintain that in order to bring about some effect of magic, the devil must intimately cooperate with the witch, whether one without the other, that is to say the devil without the witch, or conversely, could produce such an effect. So the role of the devil. Okay. Um, here's where it starts to get interesting. Question three, whether children can be generated by incubi and succubi. Incubi and succubi being kind of types of demons. So can you have sex with demons and make children? Hmm, an interesting question to ask. Question four, by which devils are the operations of incubus and succubus practiced? Question five, what is the source of the increase of works of witchcraft? Whence comes it that the practice of witchcraft hath so notably increased? And the, I imagine the increase there is probably totally imaginary, but who knows, okay? Question six, concerning witches who copulate with devils. Hmm, why is it that women are chiefly addicted to evil superstitions? That could be an interesting one. Question seven, whether witches can sway the minds of men to love or hatred. Do you notice a pattern? Remember <laughs> remember Kramer's little kerfuffle with uh, Helena and his sort of pervy obsession with women's sexuality? Yeah, I think we're seeing an influence. Question eight, whether witches can hebitate, I don't know what hebitate means, whether witches can hebitate the powers of generation or obstruct the venereal act. So can they stop you from having a child through sex? I think is probably what that's about. Well, there's like an early kind of view on abortion, maybe. Kind of relevant in some ways. Question nine. Whether witches may work some prestidigitatory illusion. So in other words, like a magic illusion so that the male organ appears to be entirely removed and separate from the body. <laughs> okay, so here's where we start to get the spell list of, of the, uh, the witch character class in the Dungeons & Dragons game <clears throat> that they were playing in 1487. <laughs> so you have a... Apparently he thinks witches had a spell that could make male's junk disappear. <laughs> Not really, but illus illusionarily. Uh, okay. We might check that one out. Question nine. Okay. Question ten, whether witches can by some glamour change men into beasts. Another for the spell list. Question eleven, that witches who are midwives in various ways kill the child conceived in the womb. There's another abortion kind of thing. And procure an abortion. Oh, and procure an abortion. There it is, you know, clearly stated. Or if they do not, this offer newborn children to devils. Question 12, whether the permission of Almighty God is an accompaniment of witchcraft. 
so in other words, if God controls everything, does God allow witchcraft to happen? I'm guessing that's the theological nut that he's going to wrangle with there. And question 13, herein is set forth the question concerning the two divine permissions which God justly allows, namely that the devil, the author of all evil, should sin and that our first parents should fall, Adam and Eve, from which origins the works of witches are justly suffered to take place. So basically the same as well, the last one was, it sounds like to me. So we cannot read all of those, of course. So I think, okay, I definitely want to get to the one about making men's junk disappear. But I think that the part that interests me most is that people at this time, churchmen at this time, didn't even believe that witches were real and you know had real power. So I want to hear why he thinks that we should believe in this at all. So let's start with that question one here. Part one, question one. Here beginneth auspiciously the first part of this work. Question the first. Whether the belief that there are such beings as witches is so essential a part of the Catholic faith that obstinately to maintain the opposite opinion manifestly savors of heresy. So in other words, Kramer is asking should it be considered heresy to not believe in witches? Can you imagine asking that when, when most other churchmen don't actually believe in witches the way Kramer does? It, he's got balls. <laughs> Give him that. He's really got balls here to ask a question like that. All right, he continues. And it is argued that a firm belief in witches is not a Catholic doctrine. So it's argued by other people that it is not. See chapter 26, question 5, of the work of Episcopus. I think he's referencing something I read about from like the year 900, I think 900 AD, um, where it said that the party line of the church, where those who think they have magical power are really just deluded by the devil and they don't really have any efficacious magic at all. Whoever believes that any creature can be changed for the better or the worse, or transformed into another kind or likeness, except by the creator of all things, God, is worse than a pagan and a heretic. So in other words, I think he's describing the opinion of others right now, not his own opinion. These other people would see him, Kramer, as worse than a pagan and a heretic. Okay. And so, when they report such things are done by witches, it is not Catholic, but plainly heretical, to maintain this opinion. Moreover, no operation of witchcraft has a permanent effect among us, and this is the proof thereof. For if it were so, it would be affected by the operation of demons. But to maintain that the devil has power to change human bodies, or to do them permanent harm, does not seem in accordance with the teaching of the Church. For in this way, they could destroy the whole world and bring it to utter confusion. It's an interesting way to start off his book by basically giving the argument against his book. Okay, all right. Okay, how long is this going to go on here? Let's see. So he goes on to quote some things from Deut Deuteronomy and the Bible that do say, like, talk, imply that witches have some power and are real. Uh, and then, okay. Here's where he seems to pick up. That to deny the existence of witches is contrary to the obvious sense of the canon is shown by ecclesiastical law. For we have the opinions of the commentators on the canon which commences. If anyone by magic arts or witchcraft, and again, there are those writers who speak of men impotent and bewitched, 
and therefore by this impediment brought about by witchcraft they are unable to copulate. And Okay, so we're seeing a real concentration again on the sexual side of witchcraft. And so the contract of marriage is rendered void, and matrimony in their case has become impossible. For they say, and St. Thomas agrees with them, that if witchcraft takes effect in the event of a marriage before there has been carnal copulation, then if it is lasting, it annuls and destroys the contract of marriage, and it is quite plain that such a condition cannot in any way be said to be illusory and the effect of imagination. Okay, so he seems to be arguing that there's some precedent in the church. He's referencing some opinion that women might be able to curse their husband to be impotent when they get married so that they will not uh, be able to copulate or produce children, and that therefore seems to be made a justification for rendering void marriage. And you can see how that, you could take a very kind of patriarchal advantage kind of view of that. It's, it's creating an out clause for men to be able to divorce a wife that is not bearing them children. That's, that's how I'm reading that anyway. Okay. But he is using that uh, to suggest that, well, actually, it is church doctrine that witches must be real and have more than illusory power. If I'm getting it right, that's, I think, what we're seeing here. Okay. He goes on to talk about what Blessed Henry of Segusio apparently wrote, and I'm going to spare us all of this, but let's uh, let's continue down here. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, he continues by saying, Moreover, it is useless to argue that any result of witchcraft may be a fantasy and unreal, because such a fantasy cannot be procured without resort to the power of the devil. And it is necessary that there should be made a contract with the devil, by which contract the witch truly and actually binds herself to be the servant of the devil and devotes herself to the devil, and this is not done in any dream or under any illusion, but she herself bodily and truly cooperates with and conjoins herself to the devil. For this indeed is the end of all witchcraft, whether it be the casting of spells by a look or by a formula of words or by some other charm, it is all of the devil, as will be made clear in the following question. So I think what he's saying is that Witchcraft can't be illusory and just made up because it because it requires the power of the devil and because she actually has bodily sex with the devil. I I don't understand the logic there, but that seems to be the the hop skips and jumps that he's making. I maybe I'm not getting it right, but all right, let's let's continue. The logic doesn't seem to hang together to me, so, but he seems to be saying, devil, 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 everything about witches, it's all about them consorting with the devil, scare you because devil, 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 and uh, we need to do something about it. <laughs> That's basically what it boils down to, right? He's, he's just condemning, denouncing, castigating, uh, trying to build up this association between 
women, and I don't, there, are, there were actually men who, many men actually, who practiced magic and sorcery and all these things too. In fact, in some parts of Europe I read, it was like 90% of the magic users of the time were men, but in other areas of Europe it was more women. He's focusing just on women here, which is an interesting point. Okay, he's just going to go on and just church, he's church doctrine, church doctrine, church doctrine, in order to basically continue to castigate witches here. So I think we've basically, the logic doesn't hang together, but we've got our answer of why, why he thinks the church should believe in witches. So basically, he's given the arguments that the church has given that witches don't actually have any real power, their magic doesn't really exist in an actual efficacious sense, but he has gone back and kind of quoted from other church sources to try to twist their words and kind of make it look like the women who are doing this must be consorting with the devil and therefore we know the devil is real so we have to also believe that their power is real and that we should do something about it. That's what I'm getting is out of this. It's a twisted line of logic but I don't know. Okay, here is one that I definitely want to delve into. This is question six. Concerning witches who copulate with devils, why is it that women are chiefly addicted to evil superstitions? Uh, so in other words, why is, it, why is he picking on women here? He's going to make a case that it's mainly women who get sucked into this diabolical thing that he is considering witchcraft. So let's let's see why he how he makes his tenuous case here. Okay, he says there is also concerning witches who copulate with devils much difficulty in considering the methods by which such abominations are consummated. On the part of the devil, first, of what element the body is made that he assumes. Secondly, whether the act is always accompanied by the injection of semen received from another. Thirdly, as to time and place, whether he commits this act more frequently at one time than at another. Fourthly, whether the act is invisible to any who may be standing by. Okay, this is... <laughs> so he's like... He's trying to envision... <laughs> if there was... If there was a documentary... Documentary, not porno. Documentary, uh, like videotaping uh, a woman having sex with a devil, what would it look like? <laughs> he wants to know in every gory detail. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, so, and on the part of the women, it has to be inquired whether only they who were themselves conceived in this filthy manner are often visited by devils, or secondly, whether it is those who were offered to devils by midwives at the time of their birth, and thirdly, whether the actual venereal delectation of such is of a weaker sort. So whether just any women can do this, or if it's mainly women who were conceived by this being, you know, copulation with devils. But we cannot here reply to all these questions, both because we are only engaged in a general study, and because in the second part of this work, there are, they are all singly explained by their operations, as will appear in the fourth chapter where mention is made. Blah, blah, blah. So he's like, okay, introduction, la, 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 la. Therefore, let us now chiefly consider women, and first, 
why this kind of perfidy is found more in so fragile a sex than in men. Okay, yes, that's what I want to hear, what his reasoning is for. All right, here's a section head that says, why superstition is chiefly found in women. As for the first question, why a greater number of witches is found in the fragile feminine sex than among men. It is indeed a fact that it were idle to contradict, since it is accredited by actual experience, apart from the verbal testimony of credible witnesses, and without in any way detracting from a sex in which God has always taken great glory that his might should be spread abroad, let us say that various men have assigned various reasons for this fact, which nevertheless agree in principle. Could you be more vague there? Wherefore it is good for the admonition of women to speak of this matter, and it has often been proved by experience that they are eager to hear of it, so long as it is set forth with discretion. So he seems to be like covering his bases here. He He's like, oh no, it, it's ex I'm actually pro-women. <laughs> it's a good thing to speak of the admonition of women here, and they want to hear it. So I'm actually helping women here. All right. For some learned men propound this reason that there are three things in nature, the tongue, the ecclesiastic, and a woman, hmm? which know no moderation in goodness or vice, and when they exceed the bounds of their condition, they reach the greatest heights and the lowest depths of goodness and vice. When they are governed by a good spirit, they are most excellent in virtue, but when they are governed by an evil spirit, they indulge the worst possible vices. This is clear in the case of the tongue, since by its ministry most of the kingdoms have been brought into the faith of Christ, and the Holy Ghost appeared over the apostles of Christ in tongues of fire. Blah, 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 blah. But concerning an evil tongue... So in other words, he's saying, like, okay, talk can be good because it could spread the word of God, but it could be bad because you can be backbiting and spread rumors and it could be vicious. Yeah, no, no surprise there. Secondly, concerning ecclesiastics, in other words, priests, uh, clerics and religious of from the priesthood arises everything good and everything evil. Hmm. Well, anyway, let's just get on to the women here. Now, the wickedness of women is spoken of in Ecclesiasticus 25. There is no head above the head of a serpent, and there is no wrath above the wrath of a woman. I had rather dwell with a lion and a dragon than to keep house with a wicked woman. And among much, which in that place precedes and follows about a wicked woman, he concludes, all wickedness is but little to the wickedness of a woman. Wherefore, St. John Chrysostom says on the text, it is not good to marry, what else is woman but a foe to friendship, an unescapable punishment, a necessary evil, a natural temptation, a desirable calamity, a domestic danger, a delectable detriment, an evil of nature painted with fair colors? Whew. Wow, okay. He goes on to quote Cicero and Seneca and some things that's like... For good women, there is praise, but... Oh, boy. Okay, here we go. Other, uh, others, again, have propounded other reasons why there are more superstitious women found than men. And the first is that they are more credulous. And since the chief aim of the devil is to corrupt faith, therefore he rather attacks them. 
He that is quick to believe is light-minded and shall be diminished. The second reason is that women are naturally more impressionable and more ready to receive the influence of a disembodied spirit, and that when they use this quality well, they are very good, but when they use it ill, they are very evil. Okay, so I think what he's saying is that women are more quick to believe and more sort of weak-minded and easily influenced, and therefore, if the, what they're being influenced by is holy and the good word, that's all well and good, but they're also more easily seduced by the devil and by evil demons and whatnot. Okay. The third reason is that they have slippery tongues and are unable to conceal from the fellow women those things which by evil arts they know, and since they are weak, they find an easy and secret manner of vindicating themselves by witchcraft. So they gossip, and since they gossip, they turn to witchcraft? What? I, I don't know how that... All wickedness is but little to the wickedness of a woman, and to this may be added that, as they are very impressionable, they act accordingly. Okay, that's a weak sauce argument. Okay, blah blah blah, something about Eve. You can see that one coming. Oh, jeez. Uh, he says, women are intellectually like children, and Lactantius says, no woman understood philosophy except Temesti. And Proverbs 11, as it were describing a woman, says, as a jewel of gold in a swine's snout, so is a fair woman, which is without discretion. As a jewel of gold in a swine's snout. Ugh. Ugh, okay. But the, oh, here we go. But the natural reason is that she is more carnal than a man, as is clear from her many carnal um, abominations. And it should be noted that there was a defect in the formation of the first woman, oh, here we go, Eve again, since she was formed from a bent rib, that is, a rib of the breast, which is bent, as it were, in a contrary direction to a man. What? And since the, through this defect she is an imperfect animal, she always deceives. La la la, okay. Eh, I get tired of that. And as to her other mental quality, that is her natural will, when she hates someone whom she formerly loved, and she sees with anger and impatience in her whole soul, just as the tides of the sea are always heaving and boiling. So in other words, the old saw, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Oh man, it's just like there's there's no like logic connecting all of this. He's just like quoting random bits of kind of common knowledge. Oh man, here's some more. Let us consider another property of hers, the voice. For as she is a liar by nature, <laughs> so in her speech she stings while she delights us. Wherefore her voice is like the song of the sirens, who with their sweet melody entice the passers-by and kill them. The sirens from the Odyssey by Homer. Uh, for they kill them by emptying their purses, consuming their strength, and causing them to forsake God. Again, Valeria says to Rufinus, when she speaks, it is a delight which flavors the sin. The flower of love is a rose because under its blossom there are hidden many thorns. Hmm. See Proverbs 5, 3-4. Her mouth is smoother than oil, that is, her speech is afterwards as bitter as absinthium. Okay, oh, absinthium is wormwood, I think. A gloss here says that. Okay. Let us consider also her gait posture, and habit, 
in which is vanity of vanities. There is no man in the world who studies so hard to please the good God as even an ordinary woman studies by her vanities to please men. Ugh, this is just, ugh, I'm getting tired of this chapter, I have to say. To conclude, all witchcraft comes from carnal lust, which is in women insatiable. See Proverbs 30. There are three things that are never satisfied, yea, a fourth which says not. It is enough that is the mouth of the womb. Hmm. Wherefore, for the sake of fulfilling their lusts, they consort even with devils. So in other words, he's saying women are by nature so horny that men are not enough, they go to devils to satisfy themselves. More such reasons could be brought forward, but to the understanding it is sufficiently clear that it is no matter for wonder that there are more women than men found infected with the heresy of witchcraft. And in consequence of this, it is better called the heresy of witches than of wizards, since the name is taken from the more powerful party. And blessed be the highest, who has so far preserved the male sex from so great a crime, for since he was willing to be born and to suffer for us, therefore he has granted to men the privilege. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, that's enough of that. Okay. So he never does seem to get to how the sex happens, which he was so obsessed with, it sounded like, trying to envision. Um, but I think, okay, yeah. So in part two, here it is. Part two, question one, chapter four. Here follows the way whereby witches copulate with those devils known as incubi. Okay, uh, here we go. It must be said that he assumes an aerial body and that it is in some respects terrestrial insofar as it has an earthly property through condensation, and this is explained as follows. The air cannot of itself take definite shape except the shape of some other body in which it is included, and in that case it is not bound by its own limits but by those of something else, so like air inside a barrel, for example, and one part of the air continues into the next part. Therefore, he cannot simply assume an aerial body as such. Why does he think that's important to argue that? <laughs> so he's a cloud, and a cloud can't have sex with a woman. That's his main point. <laughs> it would just disperse over the whole room. Know, moreover, that the air is in every way a most changeable and fluid matter, and a sign of this is the fact that when any have tried to cut or pierce with a sword the body assumed by a devil, they have not been able to, for the divided parts of the air at once join together again. From this it follows that air is in itself a very competent matter, but because it cannot take shape unless some other terrestrial matter is joined with it, therefore it is necessary that the air which forms the devil's assumed body should be in some way inspissated whatever that means, and approach the property of the earth while still retaining its true property as air. And devils and disembodied spirits can affect this condensation by means of gross vapors raised from the earth, and by collecting them together into shapes in which they abide, not as defilers of them, but only as their motive power which give to that body the formal appearance of life in very much the same way as the soul informs the body to which it is joined. They are, moreover, in these assumed and shaped bodies like a sailor in a ship which the wind moves. <laughs> uh, okay. Hmm. I don't know what... Oh, man. So in other words, I think what he's trying to argue 
He's he's trying to answer people who say like, okay, Kramer, if you think that women are really having sex with the devil, how is that even possible? Because a devil is an immaterial being like air, so how can air have sex with a human body? And he's trying to say, well, the air condenses into a you know, and then that's <laughs> just it's his it's his strange it's his weird defense. Uh, I'm gonna spare you the rest of it because it seems like. Uh, it's just going to go on like this for a while. But, okay, here's um, the next section. Whether the relations of an incubus devil with a witch are always accompanied by the injection of semen. Okay. To this question, it is answered that the devil has a thousand ways and means of inflicting injury, and from the time of his first fall has tried to destroy the unity of the church, and in every way to subvert the human race. Therefore, no infallible rule can be stated as to this matter, but there is this probable distinction, that a witch is either old and sterile, or she is not. And if she is, then he naturally associates with the witch without the injection of semen, since it would be of no use, and the devil avoids superfluity, like um, superfluous, superfluity, in his operations as far as he can. Hmm, well, I guess the devil is at least that logical. But if she is not sterile, he approaches her in the way of carnal delectation, which is procured for the witch, and should be disposed to pregnancy. Then, if he can conveniently possess the semen extracted from some man, he does not delay to approach her with it for the sake of infecting her progeny. What? Okay, so he has to get the semen out of another guy and possess it, like, like in the movie The Exorcist, and then somehow get it into the woman and thereby <laughs> create devil children with her? Oh my god, okay. But it is asked whether he is able to collect the semen emitted in some nocturnal pollution in sleep, I guess like a wet dream, just as he collects that which is spent in the carnal act. The answer is that it is probably that he cannot, though others hold a contrary opinion. For it must be noted that, as has been said, the devils pay attention to the generative virtue of the semen, and such virtue is more abundant and better preserved in semen obtained by the carnal act, being wasted in the semen that is due to nocturnal pollutions in sleep, which arises only from the superfluity of the humors and is not emitted with so great generative virtue. Therefore it is believed that he does not make use of such semen for the generation of progeny, unless perhaps he knows that the necessary virtue is present in that semen. So he's saying, okay, the devil doesn't use wet dream cum. He uses cum from actual sex. Why is this even relevant? Why are we talking about this in a book about witches? Ah, but this also cannot altogether be denied, that even in the case of a married witch who has been impregnated by her husband, the devil can, by the co-mixture of another semen, infect that which has been conceived. Hmm. Okay. And then he goes on to another section. So I guess I guess that's what he has to say about devilish possessed semen. So <laughs> possessed. So, okay. So possessed. <sighs> All right. Let's go on and let's see if we can find something. Let's choose another chapter to go to now. I think. Mm, I think let's go. I think we should go all the way to the spell book here where we're talking about the powers that they have. Um, I think we have to go to question nine 
whether witches may work some prestigious prest I can't say that word whether witches may work some prestigious <laughs> Whether witches may work some prestidigitory illusion so that the male organ appears to be entirely removed and separate from the body. Okay, this should be good. Here is declared the truth about diabolic operations with regard to the male organ. And to make plain the facts in this matter, it is asked whether witches can, with the help of devils, really and actually remove the member, or whether they only do so apparently by some glamour or illusion and that they can actually do so is argued a fortiori, for since devils can do greater things than this, as killing them or carrying them from place to place, as was shown above in the cases of Job and Tobias, so he's citing part of the book we didn't read, but we did see how he argued that they were working with the devil, right? Therefore, they can also truly and actually remove men's members. What? What kind of line of logic is that? Well, the devil can do worse. <laughs> So they must, he must be able to help them actually remove men's junk. Okay. Again, an argument is taken from the gloss on the visitations of bad angels in the Psalms. God punishes by means of bad angels. Ooh, and we're going to like a, I think this is going to be like a new uh, pay cable channel kind of series, bad angels. As he often punished the people of Israel with various diseases truly and actually visited upon their bodies. Therefore, the member is equally subject to such visitations. <laughs> well, God punished the people of Israel, so why shouldn't he also punish their penises? <laughs> what? It may be said that this is done with the divine permission, and in that case, it has already been said that God allows more power of witchcraft over the genital functions on account of the first corruption of sin which came to us from the act of generation, so also he allows greater power over the actual genital organ, even to its removal. <laughs> so he's basically he's saying that his God is obsessed with sex. There is no doubt that certain witches can do marvelous things with regard to male organs, <laughs> for this agrees with what has been seen and heard by many, and with the general account of what has been known concerning that member through the senses of sight and touch. And as to how this thing is possible, it is to be said that it can be done in two ways, either actually and in fact, I guess that's the Lorena Bobbitt version, as the first arguments have said, or through some prestige or glamour. I think prestige, like a, not prestige, but maybe prestige, like a, some kind of spell. But when it is performed by witches, it is only a matter of glamour, although it is no illusion in the opinion of the sufferer. So in other words, witches make it seem like your dick disappears, and you believe it, but actually it's just an illusion. For his imagination can really and actually believe that something is not present, since by none of his exterior sense, such as sight or touch, can he perceive that it is present. From this, it may be said that there is a true abstraction of the member in imagination, although not in fact. So in other words, he went through this long argument to show that devils can actually remove your dick, but that witches don't actually remove your dick. They're just calling on devils to cause you to think it's been removed. Weird. Huh, okay. 
Now, I think when I was browsing, I saw a story that went along with this. So I'm going to try to skip along to that because I think that, that's going to be good. Okay, this is interesting. He says, besides, it is to be considered that such an illusion of the sight and touch can be caused not only by the interposition of some smooth, unmembered body. So in other words, like, he makes it your body to be just like a Ken doll with like, <laughs> just like nothing there. It's just, you look down and you just have this smooth body where your dick should be. <laughs> okay, here is, oh my god, okay, so this is, this is interesting. Okay, he says, an incidental question with certain other difficulties follows. Peter's member, I think he's doing like, let's do a hypothetical question here. Peter's member has been taken off, and he does not know whether it is by witchcraft or in some other way by the devil's power with the permission of God. Uh, <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> oh my God, what happened to my dick? Maybe it's God's work, but maybe it's a witch. I don't know. And in this hypothetical situation, which is very serious, Kramer asks, are there any ways of determining or distinguishing between these? It, to tell if it's done by a witch or by God, or by a devil with the permission of God, rather. It can be answered as follows. First, that those to whom such things most commonly happen are adulterers or fornicators. <laughs> okay, so there's people who this commonly happens to. Uh, adulterers and fornicators just look down and see a smooth body down there. Uh, for when they fail to respond to the demand of their mistress, or if they wish to desert them and attach themselves to other women, then their mistress, out of vengeance, through some other power, causes their members to be taken off. Secondly, it can be distinguished by the fact that it is not permanent. For if it is not due to witchcraft, then the loss is not permanent, but it will be restored in some time. Okay, so if it's witchcraft, it is permanent? But here there arises another doubt. Whether it is due to the nature of the witchcraft, that it is not permanent, it is answered that it can be permanent. I don't get it. Oh, here we go. Okay, he says, For Godfrey says in his Summa, A bewitchment cannot always be removed by him who caused it, either because he is dead, or because he does not know how to remove it, or because the charm has been lost. Wherefore, we may say in the same way that the charm which has been worked on Peter will be permanent if the witch who did it cannot heal him. So, in other words, if Peter finds himself in this situation of having lost his Peter, so to speak, uh, your prescription is, well, give it a week. If it comes back, it was done by a devil with the permission of God, and no big deal. But if it doesn't, and no witch heals you of it, then it was definitely witchcraft, and we gotta find somebody to burn at the stake. <laughs> okay. In what reality is he coming up with these hypothetical situations? Okay, well that... I think that's enough of that one. I mean, that I just can't even hold on to what he's talking about. It's just ridiculous. So let's just end on this note. Tiny little paragraph here, but this really sums it up. Okay. Here we go. Kramer writes, And what then is to be thought of those witches who in this way sometimes collect male organs in great numbers, as many as twenty or thirty members together, and put them in a bird's nest, or shut them up in a box, 
where they move themselves like living members and eat oats and corn, as has been seen by many and is a matter of common report. <laughs> what the fuck? They would... Oh, oh my, okay, so to break that down for you, so apparently it is of common report in Hyrunit Kramer's day that witches uh, get a bunch of, like, disembodied penises and, like, keep them in bird's nests or in a box, and not only that, but they're, like, moving around. <laughs> I'm imagining them, like, inchworms kind of, like, pulling themselves <laughs> along. And they eat oats and corn. <laughs> like like livestock or something. Like you've just got, like you have a chicken coop, but here it's a cock coop. <laughs> Literally. Oh my god. Okay, so <laughs> he goes on. <laughs> he continues. It is to be said that it is all done by devil's work and illusion. For the senses of those who see them are deluded in the way we have said. So, like before, like we saw, like the dead witches themselves don't actually transform things. They just cause you to hallucinate that things are transformed, like hallucinating that you've lost your junk, for example. Okay, he continues, For a certain man tells that when he had lost his member, he approached a known witch to ask her to restore it to him. She told the afflicted man to climb a certain tree, and that he might take one which he liked out of the nest, which apparently was in the tree, so there's just this penis tree around. <laughs> he might take one which he liked out of the nest, in which there were several members. And when he tried to take a big one, the witch said, you must not take that one, adding, because it belongs to a parish priest. <laughs> <laughs> and I can totally believe that that was, like, just a stupid story that people would tell, like, for a laugh. Even back then, I can't believe people would believe it, and I bet most people didn't. But this guy, Heinrich Kramer, presents it like, oh, this is, like, a real thing. <laughs> it's a matter of common report. Oh, my God. Okay, I think we have to draw this to a close. Okay, so how can, all right, how can we wrap this up? Okay, so A, we have Heinrich Kramer, kind of a perv, inquisitor, wants to inquisit witches, writes this book. B, has a, a kerfuffle with Helena, uh, where he either starts his chip on his shoulder against women or really plays it out, really comes out that he has such uh, a chip on his shoulder, which is probably more likely. And in this book, where he's ostensibly writing about witches, what is a witch, and how should we condemn them and, you know, try them in the Inquisition, how does a witch have sex with the devil? Well, the devil has an aerial body, but it condenses into some kind of like a, like a solid air that is still, still somehow air, but it's like solid and somehow that allows him to do the dirty, okay? Does he actually use sperm? And the answer is, he doesn't if she is sterile, but if she's fertile, then yes. But he has to get it from some other guy, and he has to possess it. So now we've got 
<laughs> so now we've got it, like this puddle of exorcist cum that is somehow making its way into the witch in order to impregnate, impregnate her and make devil babies. He goes on and on and on about how they can make you think that your junk has disappeared and you just have a smooth Ken doll for a body. And somehow all of this is going to come together into an argument for inquisiting witches. And not only that, but people of the time, well, not the church and the Inquisition, but popular audiences and secular courts are going to be so enamored by this book that it becomes the second best-selling book after the Bible for 200 years. How did this happen in history, <laughs> like it's like the Da Vinci Code all over again. That book was terrible. I'm sorry. How did it get so popular? Because <laughs> it because it just had this uh, like inside secret quality about it, and that's probably what this book had. This was okay. This was like either the Da Vinci Code or that awful book, The Secret by Rhonda Burns. I think it was, and it just it just has this air of like salaciousness and secret knowledge that just you it's like a train wreck you can't look away so people read it it spreads they start seeing witches around every corner you get witch burnings and the rest is history okay well i hope that wasn't uh too traumatic to listen to either the content or trying to make our way through the logic and the different parts of the book that's just Oh my god. Okay. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week. We're going to do a special Thanksgiving episode and then come back with something different, but on the this same witch's theme. So we'll see you then. Thank you for listening, and see you then. Bye-bye.